And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, December 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how you can create a gift that lasts dozens of Christmas seasons. Plus, meet the new chief scientist at the government's premier oversight agency. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is pushing technology manufacturers to make their products secure by design, shifting the responsibility for securing products to manufacturers instead of their customers. CISA released its initial guidance on secure by design principles back in April and followed up with an update in October. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with CISA's senior technical advisor, Jack Cable. We released this initial guidance back in April of this year. Got a lot of really great feedback. Uh, One of the main focuses in that document was around the three principles we laid out for Secure by Design that we urge every technology manufacturer to adhere to um, in order to help uh, fulfill the, the National Cybersecurity Strategy's goal. Those are one that manufacturers really need to be taking ownership of customer security outcomes. It's not enough to just ship a product and be done with it. Rather, they need to really view customer security as an extension of their own. Second, they need to lead with radical transparency and accountability, talking openly about what does and doesn't work when they're building their products in a secure by design manner. And third, uh, tech manufacturers really need to view this as a business decision and a business process and have company leadership, um, including the CEO, really make Secure by Design a top priority. So for the updated version of the document, we took those three principles and really expanded on them. And this was based on feedback we received from hundreds of people across the, the technology manufacturers, across their customers, uh, security researchers, academics, nonprofits. Uh, we really did lots of work to gather feedback. We even held a session at uh, DEFCON earlier this year where we gave hackers a version of the draft revised document before we published it, gave them um, actual red pens and let them mark up our document, got some really great feedback through there. So so we received feedback from a, a ton of sources and wanted to incorporate that into this document so that the output of that is um, our update document, which goes into a lot more detail on the principles. And then the other key focus is to talk about how manufacturers can actually demonstrate these principles. We're trying to push towards more of a, we call it secure by demand mantra, where their customers can actually start uh, demanding better security by asking the right questions. And we start that by laying out some of the key outcomes that customers can be looking for in this document. What are some of the questions that customers should be asking? And I think this is particularly relevant to our audience of federal agencies. Definitely. So the few of the, the items we lay out in the document, and of course, would encourage everyone listening to this to uh, go and take a look at that document. Some of the key uh, questions and um, aspects that we lay out there include uh, things like, has the company developed a secure by design roadmap, including a memory safety roadmap? Have they published that? Um, Memory safety vulnerabilities, for those unfamiliar, are responsible for about two-thirds of vulnerabilities in unsafe languages, namely um, C and C++. And modern programming languages are built in a way that even if programmers make uh, these types of errors, which are inevitable, um, the programming languages protect against that. So just by changing a company's choice in the programming language they're using, they can eliminate a huge swath of vulnerabilities. Um, it's actions like these that we want to see companies talking about. How can they be working to eliminate entire classes of vulnerabilities? And that's going to require some upfront investment, but we think in the long run it's worth it. So it's aspects like those or on the secure by default angle, our basic security features included Um, add a baseline in the product versus things like single sign-on or um, security logging being an extra charge. We think that's important for tech manufacturers to really deliver a a product that uh, doesn't need to be configured 
especially to be secure, doesn't need to have extra add-ons to be secure, but rather is secure out of the box. So those are some of the, the sorts of questions that we want customers to start asking. And, you know, I wanted to ask whether software manufacturers are starting to use this document and demonstrate any of these principles in a tangible way. And I think that is the first, still the first part of my question here. But then following up on what you said, are you, you starting to see customers start to ask some of these questions that are so critical to demanding security outcomes? I'd say yes to both. Um, on the manufacturer angle, we are certainly seeing many, including some of the, the most prominent uh, tech companies, start to align to our guidance, um, and that's visible through changes to their products. We, for instance, through a, a partnership with Microsoft, worked with them to bundle security logging that they previously had part of a premium plan into the, the baseline of their product so that both government and private sector customers could benefit from that. And that's just one of many examples of companies starting to really in incorporate secure by design and secure by default. We also did a pledge with companies in the education technology industry who are delivering products to schools, to, to teachers, to students um, around secure by design and got commitments from the largest companies in the space uh, to take specific actions like not charging extra for basic security features, like publishing a secure by design roadmap and really um, taking ownership of those customer security outcomes. So, and, and that's something that we want to further drive in other industries. So, so that's on the manufacturer angle, on the customer angle, uh, we are starting to see this as well. Um, and I, I think that'll take a little longer because there's a broader swath of customers that we have to reach. Um, but really, uh, and we want to kind of publish, we, we uh, for instance, put out a document aligned with the, the White House's K-12 Cybersecurity Summit geared towards school systems, how they can ask the right questions to their uh, vendors when they're purchasing products. Um, we, we want to follow this up with even more guidance to customers because we know um, they're, they're already under-resourced as is. So as much of a head start that we can give them to ask the right questions to their, their vendors, we think will be quite beneficial. And since we focused so much on customers, I want to hone in on the question of how federal agencies should be driving these practices forward. And do they face, you think, any unique challenges as a customer of these products? I, I think certainly, um, just as we're advocating private sector customers to drive the, the adoption of, of Secure by Design by asking the right questions of their vendors. Um, we, we can do the, the same leveraging the, the federal government's purchasing power. Um, and we saw a, a kickstart of this through President Biden's executive order back in 2021. Um, CISA is in the process of finalizing the um, Secure Software Development Self-Attestation Form. And I think this is a really productive first step in driving some of these secure by design practices that we want from vendors. And I think we'll be able to really see what, what sort of impact this is making and then work to incorporate other actions of secure by design down the road. So, so I think that's one of the best ways we as the federal government can be driving of what we're advocating for, uh, looking at asking the, the right questions of our vendors. Jack Cable, Senior Technical Advisor at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, meet the new chief scientist at the government's premier oversight agency. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Government Accountability Office, the chief oversight arm of Congress, has a new chief scientist. He joins the agency after having been chief scientist at Noblis, a nonprofit research and consulting institute with many federal clients. Sterling Thomas joins me now. Dr. Thomas, good to have you with us. It's good to be with you. Well, first of all, why the jump from the private, I'll buy it, nonprofit 
sector into government and in the congressional branch. Yeah, it's a it was a, a, a tough decision, actually. You know, I've had a, a nice, long and, and very wonderful career at Noblis, doing many jobs and then finishing up as their chief scientist. The nice thing about working there was that I did have a lot of opportunities to do different types of science. I had oversight a lot of the research that they did. But the opportunity that was available at GAO was to take an even broader view of the science technology that's done in the federal government and and really have much more of an opportunity to have a significant impact in the policy side, which I had done a little bit at Nobles, but not near as much. And so the opportunity, you know, was hard to pass up of being able to go and have this broad overview and oversight to help Congress in all of the science across the government, provide some policy guidance, my thoughts, and then potentially have an impact on where some of that work goes. And the portfolio is quite broad because there is so many agencies that conduct science directly. But then there is billions and billions of dollars in scientific grants that are let by agencies. So you pretty you have kind of a big view of science in the United States. It's a lot. And actually, that's, that's a little bit of what's changed from my predecessor. So the previous chief, chief scientist at GAO had interactions with a lot of the agency, was really focused on the STAA part of it, is where a lot of the scientists exist at, at GAO. That's the part that provides kind of the the technical assessments, the spotlights that you read, a lot of the scientific uh, guidance. Um, but my role now is actually chief scientist across all of GAO because I am responsible for not only supporting the scientists at STAA, but also all of the other components of GAO that do a lot of the audit work. Because just as you said, science technology is almost embedded in all of the way the government operates. You know, there's some component that's important there that needs to be understood and often needs to be addressed in their audit work and oversight work. And so it's a uh, very broad. There's a lot of things I can look at all the time. Some of the things I, I spend, some of the stuff I spend my time doing is just kind of evaluating what needs my attention, what doesn't. And, um, you know, and that's uh, something that I'm working on as I'm growing my role here. Because there are other chief scientists in the executive branch. There's kind of a community you're joining. Yeah. And, and I've been meeting with some of them in the executive branch and the strategy side, you know, the White House with the Office of Science Technology Policy. I've met with them already um, and certainly in the agencies meeting with the chief scientists there, the parts of the government that are doing lots of advanced research. So folks that like DARPA and IARPA um, and ARPA-H. Uh, and so it really is a community of folks that are trying to make sure that the government is moving in the right direction, that we're being responsive to you know, the, um, the, con the Congress, as well as the American people. I mean, both sides are, are our constituents. And Congress gets knocked a lot, but there is some pretty good scientific and engineering and economic chops among members of Congress. It's not universal, but there is some expertise up there and also in the staff, I would say. Yes, absolutely. And and that's something that we're trying to, you know, continue to augment and grow. And so, and I'm glad that you brought economics into it because that's something else that we're, we're bringing into this uh, as well. So we've had, I've had a great opportunity to meet with, with both, both sides, the House and the Senate and continuing in, into the next several months of going up and, and meeting the rest of the um, staff there. There's quite a bit of expertise, quite a bit of knowledge, and there's a recognition that in addition to understanding the science technology that they're making decisions about, that there needs to be an economic consideration. You know, and, and science in the government ranges across, you know, the entire spectrum from fundamental science, a lot of the work that we do, like the NIH and the NSF, but also going very much into the applied world of, you know, if we're going to bring in this new technology, this new capability, what do the underlying, underlying economics work? How do they work so that we know that you know, small business or larger businesses and can adopt this technology, make it available to the American people and improve people's lives. And so those types of, you know, economic and technology discussions are happening all the time. And there's quite a bit of good knowledge up on the Hill for that. We're speaking with Dr. Sterling Thomas. He is the newly appointed chief scientist at the Government Accountability Office. And tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you worked for Noblis for a long time. What kind of scientist were you originally when you actually did the science directly? <laughs> yeah, so that that's a great question. I've done lots of great things. I started my career actually doing cancer work. I was in academia. I worked at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, where I also did my PhD, and worked on the gene signaling networks associated with lung cancer and colon cancer and some of the other types of diseases in that realm, and really got an opportunity to understand deeply kind of genetic signaling, which is what a lot of my foundational work is, and a lot of that's mathematical modeling. And I did laboratory work as well. So I 
been kind of both sides, the computer modeling and actually growing cells and all that stuff. Then I actually moved to Noblis pretty early in my career. And there I did really focused on infectious disease. A lot of it focused on national security issues, trying to make sure that, you know, we are developing the technologies to detect and treat people if, if a, you know, some sort of pandemic happens, like what happened with uh, COVID-19. And then developing the algorithms behind that, and as well as some of the laboratory detection methods, a lot of work in gene sequencing, a lot of work in identifying, you know, different uh, components of the of diseases and the viruses and how they move kind of the evolutionary drift types of stuff you you learn about. And that was the fundamental work that I did. There's actually quite a bit of other kind of tangential work. I did a lot of data science work. I actually still teach data science at George Mason University. I actually did some cyber work for Department of Homeland Security and uh, developing algorithms for detecting cyber attacks. So my work's kind of gone all over the place, but uh, foundationally, I'm a biological scientist who studied genetics. Right. So a lot of the work you have done is fairly modern. That is to say, you can't write algorithms for detecting cybersecurity flaws with a slide rule anymore. No, my father's also a scientist. He has a slide rule. He shows it to me once in a while. I'm not exactly sure how it works. All right. Well, any uh, Generation Z listening, look it up, slide rule. <laughs> it's a good thing to have in your pocket along with your protector. Well, what are your goals for GAO, science and technology assessment? I mean, that's a that's a kind of a special unit within GAO that's alongside all of the regular directors that oversee different pieces of the government and different channels. The goals at STAA, which is that science and technology director you're talking about, is really to continue to push forward the quality of science that's coming out. They have excellent quality work. GAOs, if there's one thing everyone knows about GAOs, the work that they do is, you know, you can't uh, challenge it. It's very, very good. But I do want to accelerate the volume and the speed. You know, it's hard to keep up with science and technology, and we need to as an agency, because in the end, our clients, Congress, have to make these decisions very quickly. I mean, you look at, you know, the, the recent work in artificial intelligence, specifically focused around generative AI. I mean, that is a very fast moving technology and capability. And um, GAO has been able to kind of keep up on that, but I want to make sure that as our reports and, and strategy and technical documents that describe the technology come out, they're coming out in a much more timely manner. So the goal really is to accelerate that pace, um, to increase the volume of work that we're doing so that we are hitting, as you said earlier, this broad realm of all of the types of things that we are responsible for um, providing guidance to the Hill on. And so um, the main goals, yeah, are speed and uh, volume, and then you know maintaining the quality, really embedding our scientists into the scientific domain. You're gonna see much, many more GAO scientists at uh, scientific conferences, publishing in peer reviewed journals, um, talking about the work that we do so that um, you know they can maintain their connection to the industry. And do you feel you have the resources to do that? Because you mentioned basically faster and better, and the engineers will say, great, just don't ask us also cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the good thing about uh, GAO is that, you know, we provide a return. The leadership at GAO, you know, often talks about how much each dollar invested brings back. And so uh, because of that, we, we do have a good budget to be able to continue this work. And we are growing our team and we'll continue to grow our team and we'll continue to look for additional resources. You know, but like in the end, this really is an opportunity to you know, develop this capability, make it as broad as it needs to be so that, you know, the Hill and Congress has the guidance that they need to make these decisions as they're writing policy. I mean, these things impact the policy Congress writes impacts not just scientists, it impacts everybody, because in the end, we want that technology, we want that capability to be available to um, our businesses, to our, our, you know, citizens and all the people who, who depend on, on us. And partly because of what happened during the COVID crisis and partly because of the fact that we live in an age of orthodoxies and certainties, whether they're so or not, but people seem to cling to them as if it was a matter of life and death. And science has gotten caught up in that grinder. And people say, well, the science says this or the science says that. A real scientist says, well, this is the best guess we have, but almost everything ever proven in science has been unproven later on, and that's the scientific process. Do you worry about that idea of citing science says this, and therefore this orthodoxy is hereby imposed on the earth? <laughs> yeah, so um, we could spend a lot of time talking about science education. <laughs> yeah, we could. But yeah, I mean, the scientific method comes down to kind of a fundamental statement of you're right until you're wrong. 
right? And and that's the reality of it is that, you know, it's continuing to move forward. It's a hard thing to understand if you didn't kind of, you know, be trained in that realm of it's okay to, it has, it's very important that scientists come out in the moment and say, this is what we know, and this is what we think is right. And then some other scientist a month or a year later says, actually, no, they were wrong. This is the way it is. In the end, they weren't actually wrong at the time. They had the best knowledge, and then we move forward. That's the progress. And that's the reality. It's hard for people sometimes to grasp, and it's even hard sometimes for agencies to grasp because you look at an agency like GAO, their responsibility historically has been audits. And you know we do much more science technology now, which is excellent. Um, with an audit, you're looking retrospectively, you're saying, okay, this is what happened. you know, And this is absolutely truth of what happened, which is you know the fundamental requirement of GAO. Um, it's a little bit of a culture change that you know happened before I got there, uh, but that is really embedded now in GAO, the scientific technology culture of looking forward, of saying, you know, this is the technology. What we understand today about generative AI is going to be different than the way generative AI looks in six months and 12 months. It just is. That's the way the technology progresses. It doesn't mean that what we're saying today is wrong. It just means that what we're saying today is right today. And then it, it's going to change and evolve. I know we got, you know, kind of tangled up in that during COVID because people are looking for absolutes. It's not just a challenge of science. It's really a challenge of health sciences. When someone's sick and someone's, you know, has a major life impact of about science, you know, is impacted by science like COVID-19 was, or you think of many other diseases that change people's lives, you, you want absolutes. You want to say, this is what's happening because that's the way our brains need it. And it makes us feel better. And unfortunately, that's just not the way science works. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's something that that you do need to train. We need to train our populace to understand and and have a better understanding of science. That's another, again another discussion. But you know, I think it was it's always inevitable that scientists kind of get wrapped up in that of oh, you were wrong a year ago. No, I wasn't wrong. It was just at the time that was the best knowledge we have. And that gets to the way we support Congress is that they're writing policies that hopefully last for a long time. Where they implement laws that stick around for decades. Um, so when we sit down and think about the policy of science, we have to develop policy that also allows for that continued expansion of knowledge, that continued growth of, of insight of how a technology works so that it doesn't just work today, it works 10 years from now. Dr. Sterling Thomas is the new chief scientist at the Government Accountability Office. Congratulations on the job. You didn't go there for the pay, but at least you can keep your mileage when you travel. Good to have you on. <laughs> it's great to be here. I enjoyed the conversation. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Social Security evil twins get a fresh look from Capitol Hill. But first, how you can create a gift that lasts a dozen Christmas seasons. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Veterans with disabilities often benefit from service dogs. Service dogs don't just happen, though. They require careful training. The Penn Fed Foundation has information on what it takes to raise and train a service dog from a puppy. James Skank is the CEO of the Penn Fed Foundation. Andrea McCarran is the president. And they join me now. Good to have you both with us. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. All right. First of all, give us a sense of what the demand is from veterans. You know, nine million veterans are served by the Veterans Affairs Department, and many of them do need dogs. What are the demand signals you're getting? That's such a great question, Tom. And this is why PenFed Foundation has partnered with Canine Companions, because the wait time for a veteran in need of a service dog is up to two years. The demand for these highly trained service dogs is greater than ever before. Post-pandemic, with the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, we just have such a dramatic need. What is the shortage, though, is volunteer puppy raisers like me, who get these puppies at eight weeks of age, socialize them primarily up to 18 months of age, and then they go in for six months of very formal training to learn how to turn on and off light switches, how to pick things up off the floor, how to open and close a refrigerator, all kinds of life-changing skills that can really improve the independence and lifestyle of a veteran. Yeah, because you mentioned a lot of specific tasks that these dogs are capable of learning. I think maybe service dogs have gotten a bad name because of emotional support peacocks and things that people try to get on airplanes. But this is really a practical application. 
Very much so. Their fully trained service dogs are nothing like emotional support animals, except for the fact that, yes, they provide wonderful companionship for a veteran. But studies have shown that veterans do not need a lot of the medications that they are prescribed once they get a service dog in their life. It really is a dramatic change for them and their entire family. At PenFed, one of the first puppies I raised, Pilot, who's with me right now, is number six for me. But Maverick, which is the first dog I raised at PenFed, went to an Air Force veteran in Massachusetts who had such profound injuries that his wife had to quit her job and become his full-time caregiver. When Maverick joined their family, Josh Gage, the veteran's wife, was able to go back to school, and she immediately was able to restart her career. And his life is completely different. The dog is trained to go get his cane, to fetch his medication bag, to open and close doors for him. And what's a very important skill that's taught these service dogs is called nightmare interruption. If a veteran is having night terrors, which is very common for vets who have been through combat deployments, the dog is trained to pull down their comforter, turn on the lights, and then climb in bed and lie on top of them until they are awake or calmed down and they realize everything's okay. All right. Sounds like a pretty able animal. And James, you are a Canine Companion Hero Award winner. What is PenFed writ large's interest in this? And tell us more about the connection you have with this dog organization. Providing veterans uh, freedom and independence, a higher quality of life is so important for all of us. PenFed is just one firm, and my message is really to encourage all firms to raise a puppy in training. And Canine Companions gives us that forum and gives us the professionalism of the organization in order to do it. But what it really takes is just an individual that wants to volunteer and employers that would let their employees bring these dogs to the workplace. Whether it's a staff meeting to a board meeting, it has provided an amazing positive experience for my entire firm these past five years. As Andrea says, they come to work every day, they socialize with the different employees, they reinforce the culture of service, doing something for others, and they reinforce a culture of kindness and respect. I've never been in a meeting in which we had a service dog or a puppy in training in which the atmosphere hasn't been extremely positive. So I encourage all CEOs across America to learn more and to bring a service dog into their workplace. What's your experience in, say, the Veterans Affairs Department or federal agencies letting, and they hire a lot of veterans, letting dogs come to work if indeed people are going to work. They are at VA, that's for sure. The law protects them. And what's wonderful about the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area for puppy raisers like me is the law also covers service dogs in training, not just service dogs. So when I'm training him, if I'm going to a federal agency, if I'm going to a grocery store, a restaurant, we are covered by the law to be able to socialize the dog there. Good point. We're speaking with Andrea McCarran. She's president of the Penn Fed Foundation. And James Skank is CEO of the Penn Fed Credit Union and of the Penn Fed Foundation. And if someone wants to train a dog, what are the breeds they're likely to get? And how long does it take? It takes about 18 months for a puppy raiser to volunteer their time and socialize the dog and teach it basic obedience commands. What your listeners don't see right now is this incredibly adorable nine-week-old yellow lab golden retriever cross puppy. I see that it, That is way, my newest though... recruit. You are lucky enough to see I Pilot. I can see him, yeah. But it's a very interesting question because Canine Companions primarily uses Labrador Retrievers and Golden Retrievers or crosses between the two. Anyone who knows anything about dogs knows that labs aim to please. They're extremely determined, very smart. And golden retrievers are also wonderful dogs, but they have kind of a smooshy temperament. And so the combination of the two is extremely powerful. However, there are also going to be veterans who have allergies to dogs, which is why standard poodles are also used fairly rarely, but they are used so all veterans in need can be covered. Yeah, this is one moment I wish this was television because people should only see that cute dog. Question, what about the Belgian Malinois, which a lot of service members have used as war dogs, and they don't translate well to the service end after veterans? You know, Belgian Malinois are such incredibly smart dogs, and they are used, as you know, by a lot of federal agencies, and I believe the Secret Service uses them at the White House. They have a very different temperament. 
Labradors and Goldens are really raised for their sweetness and just being gentle, good souls, whereas the Belgian Malinois are much more driven, and they have what's known as a prey drive. I mean, they are trained not just to work hard, but to fight. And that's just not something we would encourage in a service dog. Yeah, imagine taking one on the metro or something. <laughs> Somebody comes at you and you've got a Malinois. Well, for the veteran that is able to obtain one of these service dogs, what's incumbent upon him or her to make sure it stays trained and to make sure it stays emotionally and physically cared for? That's such a great question. And Canine Companions, first of all, Canine Companions and any reputable service dog organization will provide these highly trained dogs that have more than 40 skills free of charge to veterans. It really pains me, Tom, when I hear that somebody has paid up to thirty-five dollars or $50,000 for a service dog. There are great organizations out there. And Canine Companions also provides essentially lifelong service to these veterans, meaning they will check in with them, they are always available, they have very professional trainers, and that's how they keep those commands fresh. And if someone wants to raise a dog for the purpose of supplying it to a veteran, the training itself you have to know how to do. That's the wonderful thing that we're really trying to impart to the public. You do not need any dog training experience. You simply need a willingness to open your home and your heart and an employer like James who will allow you to bring a dog to the office. And research shows that having a dog in the office, particularly a service dog with a mission, lowers blood pressure among staff, increases productivity, and as James mentioned, it's so wonderful for teamwork. You know, I've raised so many of these dogs and people are just so thrilled to be a part of something life-changing and very often life-saving for our military. It must be tough though to raise a dog for 18 months and then give it away. That's the question I get literally every day, Tom. And it is very difficult, but clearly someone needs them more than I do. And what better way to express our gratitude to our military heroes than raising a service dog. I often tell people, I didn't serve in the military. I haven't been in combat, but I can raise and train a service dog for someone who has. And for someone that wants to raise a service dog or train a service dog, can you do that in the presence of other pets, other dogs that might be in the house or parrots or something? It's actually preferable to have another animal in the household because that's just one more socialization experience for these future service dogs. In fact, when these dogs go in for their six months of formal training after the 18 months with their puppy raisers, one of the things that is such a challenge for so many dogs is they have resident cats in the facility. And if there's a dog who has not been exposed to a cat, you know, the dog will just lose their mind. Whereas, sure. you know, my dogs have done pretty well because they have coexisted peacefully. You're tempting me. Andrea McCarran is president of the Penn Fed Foundation. James Skank is CEO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank, Thank you, you so much. If anyone wants information, please send them to penfedfoundation.org. All right. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Social Security evil twins get a fresh look from Capitol Hill. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The government pension offset and the windfall elimination provision have for decades limited Social Security benefits available to certain federal employees, mainly those under the old civil service retirement system, and anyone else who receives a pension from earnings that were not taxed by Social Security. A bill to repeal, GPO and WEP, had a congressional hearing last month, a field hearing in Louisiana. We get analysis now from John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And John, before we get to the hearing and your feeling about what it was revealing, let's talk about WEP and GPO, often touted as the so-called evil twins here. Yeah. There's a difference, though. They're not quite the same. Uh, tell yeah. us the difference between WEP and GPO for starters. 
So WEP reduces the primary Social Security amount for somebody who has a non-covered pension. So for the federal community, that's the CSRS pension. But it also affects police officers, teachers, firefighters, in particular states and localities where they had a similar system, CSRS, where they're only paying into their pension system and not paying into Social Security. Because you earn that pension through that non-covered work, but then you go out and you earn your Social Security through private sector work or covered work, you get a hit from your Social Security benefits. And so that's WEP. And so we feel it's unfair for Social Security law to penalize people uh, simply for earning that public sector pension when they earn separately through separate work their Social Security benefits. Right. So if they did not have separate work and only did the public sector job and only have the pension from there, you would say then WEP should be in place because in theory, the pension they receive offsets what they would have received from Social Security. Right. Well, WEP wouldn't even be in place at all because they wouldn't get any Social Security benefits because you have to work and get credit for Social Security benefits as an earned benefit as well. So yeah, it's not in place and it doesn't need to be in place when you don't earn that Social Security benefit through your private sector work. And GPO then, on the other hand, what? So that takes away uh, part of or all of the spousal benefit or the survivor benefit for individuals based on their CSRS or other non-covered pension. It takes two-thirds of that pension amount. So if you had 10000 you know, in benefits, you'd take 6700 and reduce that spousal benefit you get for Social Security or the survivor benefit. I really think the worst situations for GPO are really where that, that CSRS or teacher pension are just big enough to wipe out the entire survivor benefit. So there you have a married couple and they have these two sources of income and maybe the spousal benefit they weren't getting, but then, you know, the one spouse passes away and then they have that entire income wiped away. Whereas when you have Social Security, you at least get the better of the two formulas and you get, you know, it's usually not as hard of a hit, whereas GPO really has some situations where people are really left out to dry. So should the WEP and GPO be eliminated or should they have their formulas adjusted such that they're more equitable? So NARF's primary view is that they should be eliminated and repealed. They were fair, unfair to begin with, and they base basically reductions in Social Security benefits on income earned outside of that system. But we've also supported reform bills. Right now, there's mostly just WEP reform bills. There's not as much on the GPO side for reform versus repeal. But we support a you know, modest reform bills that are in the House on both the Democratic and Republican side that are very similar, uh, but a little bit different. So yeah, we're willing to see some improvement in the status quo, even if our primary goal is that full repeal. So those bills would do what precisely that are out there now? So they would provide some relief for current beneficiaries that are affected by WEP. There's a Neal bill. That's Richie Neal, who's the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee. And that would provide $150 per month increase in benefits for those affected by WEP. And it would create this new proportional formula going forward. The Arrington bill, uh, he's also a member of the Ways and Means Committee uh, from Texas that has a lot of state employees affected. That bill would do something very similar, increase the primary benefit by 100, spousal benefits affected by WEP by 50 for current beneficiaries. And it would also create the same proportional benefit formula going forward. The big difference between the two is that at some point in the future, the Arrington bill only gives you that new formula, whereas the Neal bill protects people and gives them the better of the two. So that creates potential costs on the Neal side for for the Social Security Trust Fund and on the Arrington side, potential benefit cuts. We're speaking with John Hatton. He is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association at this hearing, which took place, as we mentioned, in Louisiana, because a much larger proportion of state employees tend to come under WEP and GPO than at the federal level. What was the sense of the hearing? Well, I think it really provided an opportunity for some members of the Ways and Means Committee, and particularly the Ways and Means Chairman, Jason Smith, to hear directly from people how they're impacted. And I thought the stories that were given by police officers, firefighters, teachers, you know, were very persuasive, I think, to the committee members in the sense that people weren't expecting this. It's caused them a lot of financial heartache, and they felt it was very unfair. And I, and I think those points got driven home to the committee members, and it, it was noteworthy that there is a hearing on this bill. You know, we've had high levels of co-sponsors in the past. Now we have a very high level of 300 co-sponsors in the House on the repeal bill, but the committee has always been the place where the bill has kind of gone to die. And so seeing the committee take some action and going through that process is a 
good sign for good development for this issue. Where the next step goes, it's unclear. You know, the, the biggest obstacle to repealing these provisions is the cost of it. It costs $146 billion over 10 years. So there need to be some offsets. So that's largely the biggest obstacle. Now, if, is there some reform path or something else? And so having the committee take a closer look, take this a little bit more seriously than they have in the past is, is clearly a good sign for us. Yes, the 146 or $150 billion strain on the Social Security Trust Fund comes when, you know, we already know from an actuarial standpoint, it's out of money already. Yeah, I mean, Social Security is going to go insolvent without any changes in law in the early 2030s, according to the actuaries. So, you know, people are talking about Social Security reforms already right now. My guess is they don't deal with that until 2030 something uh, when they're about to go insolvent. And it's just really a matter of balancing out the revenues, the money out. And, and with the aging population, there's more money going out now than there is coming in. And at some point that will draw down that bank of money that was was put there or really it's budget authority. But, you know, I would bet on the Congress figuring out eventually, but not really any time before that. Well, they can figure it out. They just don't have the guts to do anything about <laughs> it until they have to at the last right. minute. <laughs> yeah, it's not until they're facing beneficiaries with potential benefit cuts that I think they'll actually do something on this, but we will see. And of course, as we speak, we're in the second continuing resolution and no one knows what's going to happen in the middle of next month or early. February. I've already heard predictions of a full year CR. But as they discuss all of this, there is the talk of that fiscal commission, which would try to maybe have some kind of a academic or comprehensive approach to the deficits, which keep mounting year after year, adding to the national debt. Your look shows that there could be some real implications for federal employees there. Yeah, if they do pass a fiscal commission as part of a new deal on government funding, certainly federal benefits like federal retirement benefits and federal health benefits could be on the table. You know, it'll depend on the details of how they construct that commission. Proposals that we have seen include kind of if a majority of both parties on the commission support a provision or measure, then that would go as part of a package. If they support the package, it would go to the floor for an expedited vote. So it really sets up a, a more likely scenario for there to be passage of these provisions, uh, taking it away from kind of the normal congressional process. So I think it depends on what the details of how that commission would be constructed, you know, who's on that commission, kind of what the approach would be from leaders in appointing members to it. But certainly if it is passed as part of a deal, we'll start fighting on those federal benefits issues as part of that commission process. Right. This could give the umbrella protection, you might say, to some members of Congress anyhow, for talking about increased employee contributions to the federal pension program, you know, the FERS program, or even to get rid of the defined pension system and go to the pay-as-you-go fully TSP, what you save is what you're going to have type of system. Yeah, there's a whole host of proposals that come on the table as part of this. I mean, we saw coming out of the last fiscal commission, which was the Simpson-Bowles commission, that didn't get that expedited vote, but it still put a number of proposals on the table. Uh, the first thing that came out of that that actually passed was a pay freeze for federal employees for three years. So, you know, that was a proposal from the commission and actually got enacted, even though the commission didn't get a vote. There was other suggestions like increasing retirement contributions. Now, that actually happened as part of offsets for sequestration. Uh, now that new hires are paying 4.4% into their retirement instead of 0.8%, uh, which is just an additional tax on top of their earnings. So, you know, other proposals that we see out there, the Republican Study Committee has proposals to get rid of FERS entirely for new hires, to change retirement calculations for current employees, to get rid of cost of living adjustments. So there is a ton of proposals out there that they could find savings from on the backs of uh, federal workers or federal retirees. Yeah. So you're worried that this commission, this idea of a fiscal commission could open the Pandora's box, so to speak, to all kinds of lurid proposals. It, it certainly could. And I think, again, I, I we would have a job to do if this commission is put in place about pushing back and talking to the right people. I think the, the federal community would have that job as well to make sure members knew what the impact it would be. Right now, it's kind of about the design of it and how is it set up and what is the purpose of it being set up to do? And is that taking aim in part at federal benefits? We will see. And in the meantime, there is a federal pay raise on the horizon in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it'll just take an executive order from the president, but that's basically already put in place in terms of the alternative pay plan that was sent to Congress uh, in August. So a 4.7 across the board pay increase for the non-locality pay part and a 0.5% increase in the locality pay 
on average across the board. So that'll be welcome news for federal employees um, in January. And I, I think the one benefit of a CR going through the beginning of the year is that Congress isn't going to have an opportunity to kind of mess with this before it goes into place. <laughs> yeah, well, that's always good news. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, December 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale, and Michelle Sandiford. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, how you can create a gift for a veteran that lasts a dozen Christmas seasons. Plus, Meet the new chief scientists at the government's premier oversight agency. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Air Force is moving away from making investment decisions based on Excel spreadsheets, something it's long tried to modernize. For nearly three years, though, a team of about 200 people has been working on a decision advantage tool they say will soon let senior leaders easily find out how even a single financial decision will affect everything else. For details, Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis spoke to the Air Force Assistant Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, Joe McDade. What's the new tool about and what capabilities does it provide that airmen and women haven't previously had? Yeah, it's a great question. So for three years, we've quietly been working with a group of people across the headquarters of the Air Force to develop a model-based decision support tool to help us make better uh, investment decisions. What's really important about that is when we make investment decisions today, it's based on Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoints, this tool will allow a senior leader to see the dynamic impacts. If you're going to invest in something, how does it ripple across the ecosystems of the Air Force, readiness, aircraft availability, strategic basing? That's new, that's never been done before. And could you take us through the timeline? Uh, the timeline, again, three years of DevOps with a, uh, a tremendous small business out of uh, Silicon Valley. Their name is Rhombus Power. Uh, we've developed a, a platform called Rhombus Guardian. And uh, our first iteration of this tool will be deployed in January. Then there'll be a series of spirals as we continue to gain confidence in the applications. What's really important for your readers to understand is we were going into this complicated uh, decision support tool with our eyes wide open. All models are wrong, some models are useful. I am sure we will get lots of feedback about the models and how it's working. We're gonna take all that constructive criticism and make the entire ecosystem better over time. So our commitment in my organization is to make sure we use this for the long term, tune the models over time, to be able to give senior leaders like Secretary Kendall the decision support tools that he's looking for. Could you elaborate on the apps that are coming and what's coming after? Sure, so uh, we're, we have a series of apps to help us build the POM. One of the uh, suite of apps we call what if tools. So when a senior leader says, what if I do something, a lot of the time it relates to force structure. So we've got weapon system sustainment apps, we've got uh, flying hour apps, we have manpower apps. Those manpower apps are all of those three are now tailored to specific weapon systems. So now when a, a senior leader says, I want to add or, or take away aircraft, what are the costs going to be? What are the implications going to be? What are my strategic basing options going to be? Uh, and so on and so forth. 
And what did you find during testing? One of the most surprising things for us was as we uh, had our most experienced people uh, develop the code and we said, okay, the code is now final so we can load it up to the cloud. You have to freeze your code to do that. Uh, there was a several month delay before we actually compared the, the, uh, the automated tools to the manual process. When we did that, we found out that some of our folks uh, needed more education training just to do the manual process. So what, what I dearly hope will happen over time is we will improve both our education and the use of this tool and there'll be a synergistic relationship. When people question the tool, it may be that the tool needs to be improved. It may be that we're also identifying an opportunity for training and education for the person who thinks it's wrong. So I'm excited about that and I hope it's a synergistic relationship that makes the Air Force better over time. Right, and you're looking for companies that could provide you some capabilities that you can build over it. What are you looking for? Maybe give us an example. Well, as, as companies see what we're doing, uh, we want them to be able to, once we do the demos to them, I think companies will instantly see what we've done and how they can make it better. And we are eager to take that kind of input from industry and then see how we can find the resources to let those folks make the system better over time. And you talked about how challenging the process has been. Could you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges that you faced over the last three years? So when anyone says your software has to match the, match the complexity of what you're actually dealing with, that rolls right off the tongue. When you actually try and go after that, that is insanely complicated. So the Air Force is a whole series of very complicated systems that have very complicated interrelationships. So to create those models is one of the reasons it took three years. Now that we have the models in place, as I mentioned in my presentation, we have to go back and tailor each of those large models like weapon system sustainment, flying hours, to individual weapon systems. So as you can see, what starts to happen here is we, you do the metal models and then you have to do many, many, many uh, tailored models. So the complexity of that ecosystem gets to be uh, fairly large very quickly. And how does it fit into the broader picture? Secretary Kendall is looking for digital decision support uh, tools. We're hopeful that as we launch our initial iterations and the secretary and other senior leaders start to actually get experience using the tools, that it will become one of the backbones for what the secretary is seeking to do to make us more agile uh, and more um, optimized for great power competition. How are you sharing it with other services? How are you working with other services? That's a great question. And we have shared with the, uh, with the Navy in particular. We're uh, briefing CAPE next week. Um, but the point of the entire exercise, and, in, and within the Department of the Air Force, we have Space Force. So what we've told the Space Force for some time is what we've done is de-risked your ability to adopt this if you choose to. They haven't made a decision yet, but what we're, we're trying to do is say to both the Navy and to the Space Force, if you decide to go down this path, there's a lot of non-recurring uh, research and engineering that had to happen, and, and we've, we've already funded that. So it should be an easier choice if they decide it's useful. What are you looking forward in the coming year? What I want to do, again, is back to senior leader decision makers. We're in a very uncertain financial environment. They have to make very difficult decisions. So when a senior leader is striking a balance between readiness, modernization, or procurement, uh, how can I give them the tools so they make informed decisions? And most importantly, understand if you invest in this thing over here, how does that ripple through the rest of the ecosystem of the entire Air Force? I'm excited that you find this newsworthy and we look forward to working with you and others to get the word out so that we can take advantage of what industry can bring to bear. Joe McDade, the Air Force Assistant Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, speaking to Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, meet the new chief scientist at the government's premier oversight agency. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.